Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. One of the few cheery genres of quarantine coverage is the what should you stream article. The premise is simple and easily churned out. Here are some movies about pandemics. Here are some movies that will make you forget everything. Here are the greatest yada yada yada. But great movies deserve something more substantial than a listicle mention. In the May issue of Harper's Magazine, Jeffrey O'Brien reviews the definitive Jacques Tati, a thousand-plus page compendium edited by Alison Castle. As O'Brien shows, the enormity of the text is warranted. Tati's intricately crafted oeuvre works on the level of simple buffoonery as well as the profound. I was joined by O'Brien to dive deeper into Tati's filmography, particularly masterworks like Playtime. I'd like to start off by asking Jacques Tati, how is he and his character, Monsieur Hulot, how similar or dissimilar is he to other silent or semi-silent comedians like Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, Jerry Lewis? Tati is really singular. Uh, he's obviously deeply influenced by silent comedians, especially Buster Keaton, the constructive stuff that, that Keaton does, a lot of which is very similar to things that he gets into in his later films. But the the actual rhythm and mood of Tati's comedy is is very much his own thing, and it, it's quite unusual. He, he doesn't do classic gags that build with a certain climactic rhythm, and then, then you get the big laugh, and then you set up the next gag. His gags just kind of pop up very unexpectedly. Sometimes they're really tiny. They, they just happen for a moment. And sometimes they, they seem to have very little to do with what the main story is, except, of course, with Tati, there really is no main story. There is a series of episodes that, you know, he constructs very carefully, but they, they don't follow any kind of classical narrative arc. He sets up situations, basically, and then things happen within a certain time frame. People arrive as the seaside for their vacation, and then at the end, they go home again. Uh, in Jour de Fête, the circus comes to town, and then it leaves. Uh, in playtime, people come to Paris, and then they go back somewhere else. And and that's kind of his notion of plot. Plot really isn't what interests him. Uh, and even within an episode, things go in all kinds of unexpected directions. He's totally open to letting things arise in, in, in the most sometimes uh, peculiar way, which uh, is, is why some of them, they're really funny. They're also sometimes quite unsettling and uh, create this sense of illogic and what is, what is exactly going to happen now. I mean, there are things that are just half jokes like the main part of playtime this 45 minute long section at this restaurant that's just it's its opening night there's so many little things where you're like is that a joke where there the band is playing and the waiters are preparing food and it kind of looks like they're doing it in time and again it doesn't it doesn't add to anything it just gives you it's just something to enjoy assuming you're focused on it because there's so much other stuff happening all the time yeah yeah i mean in fact in that same episode there's a moment when um the um 
is broken glass, and then you see a bunch of glaziers carrying a big pane of glass, which of course is imaginary. They're they're miming it, and then as they move, they're moving in rhythm, and suddenly it's a ballet, and it's just a, a momentary impression. You realize, yeah, they're they're dancing, um, and and that's it. It it moves on. It doesn't lead to anything else. It just there it is. If you caught it, and and that scene is, I mean, it just kind of, uh, to me, his his most amazing uh, accomplishment in a way. There is so much going on. You can watch that movie an indefinite number of times and continue to find things going on in the background, things going on in the corner that you didn't even notice before. Uh, That, I mean, he is deliberately orchestrating the situation that you cannot see all of in in one go. You, You have to keep coming back. Right. I mean, maybe we could get into the experience of watching, let's say, playtime in 70, you know, projected in 70 millimeter versus watching it at home, because I feel like those are two completely different experiences where perhaps you feel it feels more manageable at home. But that's also not that's absolutely not what he was going for. Yeah. I mean, that that is a movie that exists to be shown on the biggest possible screen so that you really have an impression of, of Im- total immersion in the film. Uh, at home, well, it helps to have a very large TV, is all I can say. I mean, the, the smaller the image, the, the less you are going to be able to process that movie. Yeah, I mean, it's a movie that is almost deliberately designed to be more than the spectator can, can process which, you know, may account for the fact that it, it, it was, in fact, not a success because I, I think people were overwhelmed. Uh, they, they were expecting to be able to follow the action on the screen. And instead, he throws multiple things at you simultaneously. Uh, and, and the pleasure of the film is beginning to realize just how much is going on, as in life. I mean, which is, for him, the point that uh, the movie is an extension of life. And then when you step out of the theater, the life is an extension of the movie. Tati does not use close-ups. He doesn't use conventional grammar at all. Um, and uses often uses sound to create uh, a sense of space. I mean, there's a gag in Jour um, de Fête where, where the postman is going along the road and you see him at the back of the frame, and then on top of a hill, a farmer is looking at him and seeing that he's being bothered by a bee and that he's trying to shoo the bee away, and the farmer's laughing because he thinks it's very funny. And then you hear the sound of the bee approaching, and then the farmer is in trouble. Um, And the whole sense of space is based on this sound of, of, of the buzzing. And you know that that's in a in a small way he he does that sort of thing constantly uh, to create yeah multiple levels and where there is often considerable doubt about where things really are happening and where sounds are coming from and what is that sound um, so that nothing nothing is ever quite what it seems or sounds like doing these 
these physical jokes or even just walking. Like so much of that is about observation. There's a uh, short film that was shot, uh, I think during the making of Playtime, where he's giving instructions to this room full of aspiring physical comedians and he is always I would say like watch and like then one of them tries to do like a math problem to solve how many steps you should take when you're accident tripping on a stair and it's it, it gets absurd but he it, it seems like he's putting us in that position that he is always in of just watching just observing yeah as if it's a kind of dis- a life discipline of of looking and noticing the, the tiniest details. And he always claimed that that was his source for, for everything, to simply sit in a cafe or uh, in, in any public place uh, and just watch people and, and pick up on small behavioral gestures uh, and, and then work that into his films and, and literally taking people uh, who were not professionals of any kind and putting them in his movies and more or less training them to be themselves in a slightly more exaggerated way. He would detect certain tics and, and say, oh yeah, do that, but yeah. And then he would show them exactly how he wanted them to do it. So, it, you know, it's like he's do, doing a training school for, for people to play themselves in a way. And yeah, he preferred that. He he didn't work with professional actors uh, all that much. Um, he, he greatly preferred people who, who were just people he found. What is interesting to me about Tati is that there's a kind of amateurism that is fundamental with him, and and it's part it's part of what makes him singular because he he isn't somebody who starts out trying to get into a profession and become a professional actor or a professional filmmaker. He starts out as someone who isn't apparently even that ambitious, who, you know, was a a mediocre student, a reluctant apprentice in his father's uh, picture framing business, and then found that he had these skills basically to amuse his friends, um, to, you know, the the first uh, mime routine that he did was done uh, on the beach at Saint-Tropez to uh, provide entertainment for some of the people who were there on vacation. And then when he got into uh, sports, he joined a rugby team and he started amusing his teammates by doing mimed recaps after the game of, of the highlights. And those were so well-received that he ended up performing them in front of an audience and so on. And that led into a, a successful career uh, in vaudeville, where he acquired a considerable reputation. He was hardly a, an international star, but he did travel throughout Europe. And, and then came the war, and he was sidelined. He was in Germany at one point, uh, roped into performing there, and and somehow somehow got out of Germany. It's a little unclear how that happened. And supposedly kind of hid himself away in an obscure village in France, which became the setting for his first feature, Jour de Fête. And Jour de Fête was made in a kind of outside the the industry. He had great difficulty finding a distributor for it. It took, I think, two years between the making of the film uh, and its uh, commercial opening. 
Uh, and then once it opened, it was enormously successful and was seen as a, a kind of rebirth of French comedy and a rebirth of a certain gaiety uh, after the war. Uh, so he, he very suddenly then, after, you know, he was not young at that point, became extremely famous in France. And then with Monsieur Hulot a few years later, he became internationally famous. And Monsieur Hulot's vacation was... Uh, a big hit in America, and Mononc won an Oscar, and and so on. I mean, in the fifties, he he was truly, uh, you know, a, a kind of phenomenon. Uh, and then, you know, playtime uh, was was his catastrophe. He he put everything he had into the making of that film. Took a very long time making it. Built a whole city as a set, uh, and it, it was a complete flop, and he couldn't even find an American distributor for the film. So in all of this, he had a successful career while somehow remaining outside of all that. He he all and he always wanted to maintain this kind of outsider status of of the ind- the total independent. And I, I mean, I think that's very much who he was. You don't touch on this in the piece, but he viewed himself as somewhat of an outsider because he was beloved by many French intellectuals and, again, had this tremendous amount of fame in the 50s, but yet he didn't think of himself that way. He apparently was, you know, he he, he always claimed he he almost never read a book, and some have said that, yeah, that's about right. Um, You know, he he really... um, Starting with his student days, where he he really was kind of a a goof-off in school. And, you know, what influenced him was circus, vaudeville, cabaret, silent movies, and sports. So, in a way, he saw himself as being just an average person. And he always said that he just wanted to make movies for regular people to laugh at. And he made no great claims for himself as a as an experimental filmmaker uh but he was taken as such and of course he he was uh and he was perfectly experimental and developed all kinds of uh, you know really uh singular techniques uh in his films um but you know there's this double thing on the one hand he wants to come across as just you know the average person and and on the other hand He's really kind of strange, and that definitely comes through in the films. And Hulot is this guy who is, he's both kind of every man, and he's also very odd. And people, other people in the movie, most of them see him as rather odd. Mm-hmm. And he is, meanwhile, behaving as if he were a completely average, normal person. Right. His dominant theme, and then this goes back to the time in which he was making most of these movies has to do with not just an Americanization, but a mechanization, a modernization that is, it's really, I mean, Playtime is really one of the great anti-corporatist, anti-consumerist films of all time, but you don't, you're not bombarded with that message. It's just in every frame of the film and you, and you feel it because he has such a keen visual sensibility. Yeah, I mean, uh, he was, by all accounts, a fairly apolitical person, uh, or at least his politics were not sharply defined, even though his films, I mean, certainly both Mononcle and Playtime were taken as 
large statements about uh, globalization and the modern world, uh, but he he reacted to to situations. He he, he really. I mean, supposedly playtime really grew out of his experiences traveling a lot in the wake of uh, Mononcle's success and, and noticing airports and noticing shopping malls and, and just simply taking in this kind of homogenization of the world where everything looked the same. And that, that fed the film. It became a kind of meditation on that. Uh, so he... Yeah, it was not an intellectual approach. It was a it was a, a design approach. It was a, he saw the images, and then he also processed, of course, the sonic element. You know, which is I mean, that's a, another thing with Tati, the, the fact that his movies were shot silent. So in effect, he's making silent movies, but at the same time, they're totally conceived in terms of the soundtrack, which he created after the film was already shot and. Edited. Yes. And the, the making of the soundtrack took as long as the shooting of the film, sometimes longer, uh, and involved incredibly elaborate devices, dialogue, which is partly incomprehensible in different languages, dialogue that doesn't sync with what's going on on the screen, sounds that seem to sync with what's going on on the screen, except actually their source is something else that you only find out about a moment later. That sort of thing. And, and of course, you know, airports are perfect for that. You have all of these voices going on. You have announcements in different languages and likewise shopping malls and public address systems. Mr. Euler's vacation begins with uh, a great gag where the, uh, the public address system at the train station is completely incomprehensible. And you have the crowd of people and they hear the, the announcement, which is, garbled and they all go down the stairs to the other platform and then it turns out they got it wrong and they go down the stairs again to another platform and and so on that's kind of like the the early phase of his working with sound and then that just gets more and more elaborate until he gets to playtime and it's uh i mean you have this incredibly elaborate visual system and then an equally elaborate sound system that interacts with the visuals without totally sinking with them. So, you know, the, you know, what I find incredible, he starts with the simplest possible thing himself alone, let's say on a beach or in a, in a room, no props, not using dialogue, just miming. So it's just him and moving his body, making gestures. And that's the, the basic element. And then he just elaborates on that and adds, more elements, but never losing that that fundamental thing. So it's just this kind of accretion of of elements, and it gets more and more complex until, you know, in Mononcle he's, he's building houses, and then in and uh, you know facades and and so on, and then in playtime he's building a whole city with with a whole system of reflection, so that it's almost impossible to see what is actually going on because there's so many reflections. And then, of course, after that, he had to go back working simply because he could no longer get the kind of budget that he had on playtime. And his his last movie, uh, Parade, he reverts to where he started out and does some of the original routines that he was doing at the very beginning of his career, uh, doing these you know sports 
impressions and so on. Right, because, um, for example, Playtime begins with him trying to reach this, for no, for no given reason, he's trying to reach Monsieur Girard, who works at this, yes. in, this insane, very large, totally gray, totally hostile-seeming yes. office building. And you can hear people's footsteps kind of clacking before they come, and everything is very, you know, spaces is elongated and oh, then also condensed an incredible yeah, shot. yeah. yeah. The, the twisting around of s- space and then the the fake outs and the mirages that arise from this completely hostile environment and you see i mean one of the great one of the great shots of many in that film is of the people who are working in cubicles and there's this woman in this like little bubble who kind of kind of rolls around taking uh, phone calls and then doing broadcasts and it's just everyone is packaged everyone is in their exact place and Ulo is like a interloper he's literally an interloper and doesn't understand how this is a building only of right angles <laughs> just yeah. and nothing yeah. else yeah well Fetsi has that great line where I, I don't think that uh, straight geometric lines bring out the best in people <laughs> Um, somewhere else, so there is, there's all these arrows telling people where to go, and they and they can never get anywhere. Uh, and he's constantly. Oh, my favorite, one of my many favorite gags is where he he sees this little alcove and kind of pokes his head in, and it's an elevator, and the door is closed, and right. suddenly he's in completely other space on a different floor. And I mean, that whole first part of the movie is just him going into the wrong space and not understanding what's going on and waiting for people who then try to help him, except they've lost him. And he, he is seeing things through glass and thinking that it's there and, you know, all of that. Yeah. And there's also this insane doubling where there are men who are dressed like Ulo and it again, it's like this mass production, and and even Ulo is not even really the main character of the film. It's kind of it's this diffuse, confusing thing, which is again why people. I mean, if it, it is a critique of how insensitive a world like that can be, and we're living through a time where you know people are mad that they can't. Uh, go shopping like they normally do. They want to break quarantine so that they can get the, whatever for their house. And yeah. every day we're losing 3,000 people. We're losing a 9-11's worth of people every day in this country. And there doesn't seem to be any mourning. There doesn't seem to be any sort of acknowledgement of how, compl- even by the media, which is ostensibly against Trump, there's no acknowledgement of how barbarous that is. And I guess it, 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 part of that is because it's not happening on live TV. These deaths are sort of invisible, but it also has to do with this, the world that we built, right? Well, playtime, yeah, the whole, that whole city of the future that he built, it, you know, it's, it's like a, a mask or a, a facade and you, you can't actually see what's going on. Everything is, is designed to conceal. To, distract or divert nothing nothing is actually 
seen as it is. Um, and there's a moment in that film where dawn comes after all of the collapse of the restaurant and the, all of that, and then they're kind of going out into the street. And you suddenly hear a rooster crowing. Yes. <laughs> and from where? No, you're in the middle of this completely artificial environment, and some somewhere, somehow, there's the sound of a rooster. You know, which goes back to Jour de Fête, which really is the country, and it's full of animal sounds, and there is a sense of connecting with uh, some kind of primal reality. Not that it's idealized, but it is at least primal and real, and there's other species existing. And and then, you know, you just get this gradual disappearance of that. I mean, Mononc is full of dogs, for example, the Tati love dogs. Right. And the whole movie, part of it is these dogs running around in urban spaces. But by the time you get to playtime, the, that's over. I mean, the, the only animal is a pet that a woman has in a pet case, and you never do see the animal. Right. Seeing these films now, I'm reminded that when they originally released, they were reviewed as regressive or conservative. You know, something like Mononcle, where Hulot lives in this kind of shabby part of town, this not touched by these Le Corbusier um, structures and is not, it's very organic. And people go to the farmer's market and they bring their own bags and stuff like that. And now we've come full circle where that sterility and efficiency of institutions, of office buildings is now mostly relegated to people who are poor, whereas in the past it was the opposite. Well, I mean, Mononcle was shot at a time when neighborhoods like that were, in fact, being demolished to make way for, you know, exactly that, these new uh, high rises and so on. And and playtime, likewise, I mean, that was still going on. I mean, so it, it does reflect pretty closely what was and, and, you know, to that extent, Tati was, you know, obviously resisting that, although he, he did say, I have nothing against modern architecture or, or modern design. I, I, I only object to how people live in it and, 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 you know, how it affects people's lives. It's not the design that is at fault. It's the, the lives that are, uh, that take place within those structures. Uh, and it's true, I mean, playtime is, is visually beautiful. It may be a horrific vision, but at the same time, it is itself a masterpiece of design, uh, which is beautiful to watch, even as it uh, is evoking, you know, a, a kind of horror. And, and that, you know, again, I mean, that to me is, Tati has a profundity that, you know, really goes beyond his even even his stated intentions. He, he he's such a you know a, a natural in a way. He's he's not proceeding from an idea. He's he's discovering things and he's discovering them all throughout his life and and weaving them together. Right, because these are machines or spaces that are designed by people, and you can see how they're supposed to work. 
And then just like people, they don't work that way. There is a, a fragility to so much of this stuff, which is why in Mononcle, they get stuck in the garage. They can't get out the, the new automatic uh, uh, garage door closer. They, they're stuck in the garage. Oh, yeah. Yes. Because of the dog, right? Yes. <laughs> the, do- the dog locks them in. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not just one thing operating all the time. It's kind of these multiple levels. And you can go very deep or you can just enjoy it as a very simple kind of funniness, a lightheartedness. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in France, I, I think it's still true. It certainly was true for a long time. Uh, you know, Tati really was a kind of national hero because people, you know, especially in Jour de Fête and, and uh, Monsieur Hulot's uh, vacation, and and Monod, they saw some kind of essential French quality of that period, of that post-war period, and so there's this enormous nostalgia attached to it. And you know the movies have continued; they they come back again and again. And and uh, people, you know, Monsieur Hulot is part of the national iconography, and Francois, the postman, and and George de Fête. These, these are images that, that are really part of, of post-war French history. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned in your review of the Tashin book that he had written this screenplay, which was never produced, where Monsieur Hulot dies, and it's this world where everything is just people talking to each other on screens, which is, which, I mean, at the time, you'd be like, oh, come on. But now it's like, ah, uh, you got us. <laughs> you, yeah. You actually saw the future on that one. <laughs> well, he, he died in 1982, you know, so he was ahead of the curve with that. And he did want to get rid of the two look. I mean, he, he, he did not want to be, after a certain point, he did not want to be the star of his films. He didn't want it to be, he didn't want to be Chaplin or Keaton where there's the, the funny star and then there are all the other people. He wanted everybody to be funny. And everybody to be kind of equal in that way. So there is this kind of egalitarian thing. Right. And he's, he's really, uh, you know, and, and in those big scenes, like the, the restaurant scene in, in Playtime, he is trying to make everybody a star in a way uh, at, at one moment or another. All of these figures, the people having dinner, the waiters, the people in the back, the and and it's all you know. He mined them. He he, he developed uh, their gestures uh, very very precisely, uh, and then set it all in motion. So, Monsieur Hulot was something he felt finally well. He was stuck with it because that's what people expected from him. But he wanted to get rid of it, you know. And confusion, as it was called, you know, it would have been a, a, a pretty wild film from you know based on the screenplay but uh, unfortunately he, uh, by then he really he was quite ill and you know just it was not something that uh, could bring about but um, the screenplay is I, I think kind of fascinating in going going to that idea of everyone is a performer there are times in something like playtime where that is that sense is more submerged and then there are other times like when the Ulo is sitting in this waiting room and this other businessman comes in and he just makes a total performance out of signing a document. Yeah, with all these 
nervous sticks, yeah, pushing your hair and all of that, yeah. Well, I think that's a, that's a classic example of that thing of, you know, you can see somebody doing stuff like that and just say, okay, I'll take that and then just amp it up just a little bit. And it's total realism, except it's just a little bit exaggerated, but in fact, not all that much. Right. That feels like the guiding principle of much of the sound, too, where mm. you have this very aggressive room tone or the sound of a glass door kind of yeah. slamming shut or drifting shut. It's all that's all very exaggerated, but at the same time, it's it's real. It's certainly mm. and that that aggressive room tone where it's just this buzzing of the lights. You you do have a sense of this is a <laughs> there's no there's not much humanity here, even though this place is full of people. And David Lynch, of course. Uh, a great fan of Tati, uh, used that in his films. Well, it, interestingly, I mean, Tati apparently did suffer for, from some hearing difficulties. And, you know, the, the way he handles dialogue sometimes to me sounds like this is what it sounds like when you can't quite hear what people are saying and you kind of get the general drift and you get the overlapping right. tone. And he does that so brilliantly where, in fact, you're never really lost even though, in fact, you can't hear about half of the words that people speak. But somehow you understand <laughs> because you're, you're watching and you're understanding the situation. Well, I really enjoyed rewatching these films, and I'm glad I got to talk to you about them. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. Uh, and, you know, Tati is great viewing anytime, and, you know... Uh, and since we all seem to have some time, um, this might be that moment. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.